0: Before we go to Mesopotamia, we need to put Mesopotamia in context, which means going back 5 million years to the dawn of humankind. What happened 5 million years ago was a change in climate considerably reduced the size of forests and jungles, leading to an opening of plains in the form of deserts, steppes, and meadows. Many primates and other animals living in the forest and dependent on trees for their habitat began to feel a kind of a real estate squeeze as there was less space to go around in the forest. And so with any real estate squeeze, these animals decided to make a go of it in the open savannas that are still present in Africa. Now, if you're an ape living in the jungle, you don't want to leave the forest unless you have to for a couple big reasons. First of all, the food supply chain is quite different in the savannas than in the jungle. So you can't rely on the availability of the same fruits and vegetables that make up the bulk of your diet so this means you have to figure out how to be smarter about how you find nutrient-rich vegetation which in savannas are often root root vegetables that need to be dug up or you can try your luck hunting other animals but that's tricky too since those four-legged animals have evolved to move much faster on an open plain than any primate will ever be able to to sprint or run Uh, the second problem you have are the big cats prowling around looking for anything that moves to eat and similar to the antelopes and impalas uh the big cats can move much faster than any primate and can like you know like lions for example and can easily take out any primate and i just want to take a moment um given (laughs) these um Uh, daunting circumstances uh to thank that those those brave primates for taking the plunge and leaving the forest because let's face it without those guys uh, none of us would be here today all right so eventually those primates learn to start walking upright and this is really where we start to draw the line between um between primates or apes and hominids And nobody knows for sure how or why we transition from knuckle walking to upright walking, but some anthropologists believe it has something to do with the fact that a hominid can cover much greater distances by walking upright than by uh, knuckle walking like a chimpanzee. So furthermore, some anthropologists believe that early humans could hunt livestock by simply tiring them out by stalking them for hours on end early hominids eventually evolved into what we now refer to as archaic humans starting with homo habilis and then homo erectus and the reason we refer to homo habilis as human is that it was that homo is because homo habilis was using stone tools although truthfully depending on who you talk to they may say uh archaic humans began even earlier than that at any rate By about uh, one and a half million years ago, Homo erectus shows up in the fossil record. And we also have evidence that this is the time, um, at at this time, Homo erectus was producing fire. So it kind of gives the Prometheus myth uh, a whole new meaning. Um, By 400,000 years ago, Neanderthals began to show up. Now, we like to think of evolution as a straight line, but in reality, it has many branches And Neanderthals and Homo erectus actually coexisted at the same time. And at this time, Neanderthals would begin leaving Africa and, you know, 400,000 years ago and settling in uh, Europe and Asia. Meanwhile, around 200,000 years ago, Homo sapiens showed up in the fossil record. But it wouldn't be until about 100,000 years ago that Homo sapiens would take on the behavioral characteristics that we see today and um, what we call sort of modern behaviors and by modern behaviors i'm talking about culture so these humans could make uh, art style their hair practice religion and dance and make music and of course language is central to all of this so it is believed that language evolved quickly during this period as well it's still a big mystery as to what happened a hundred thousand years ago that allowed the anatomically modern humans to become behaviorally modern in fact, there appears to be no significant changes genetically, which, which explain this dramatic shift. And while there are a whole slew of interesting theories, there isn't enough evidence to back any of them up. So we'll just have to keep researching and wondering for the time being. Now, these early humans did attempt to migrate north out of Africa, and many succeeded. But those humans were, that, were either, um, I shouldn't say many, some succeeded... But those humans were either killed off by Neanderthals or somehow managed to interbreed with them. But somewhere between 75,000 years ago and 45,000 years ago, and we know this from genetic analysis, a group of humans crossed the so-called Gates of Grief from Eastern Africa, um, so that would be around where modern-day Eritrea and Djibouti are into uh asia which is which would be is where modern day yemen is so if you look at a map this is the part of asia that looks like it's pinching africa so the gates of grief is that body of water that separates africa from asia here just at the the narrowest part of the pinch and it was from here that this group of early humans would begin spreading out throughout the rest of the world now most of the early migrations were as you would expect coastal migrations So these humans mainly stuck to the coasts and this is how they eventually would get to Australia and later to North America and then finally South America. And it should be pointed out that because of Australia's size and isolation, Australian Aboriginals share the oldest continuous culture in the world going back at least 45,000 years ago. The other thing to note is that the coastal migrations tended to move eastward since this is where the sun rises from and it may have acted like some kind of uh, religious beacon. So that's why the Americas, and South America in particular, were the last continents that humans arrived on. Now, these early modern humans still had to contend with other archaic humans, like the Neanderthals in the West, and a group of um, uh, archaic humans known as the Denisovans in the East. So migration patterns would also be impacted by these larger and stronger hominids. And we know these interactions with archaic humans happen because... Um, those with European and Asian ancestry actually shared DNA with Neanderthals. And some people, like Australian Aboriginals, shared DNA with Denisovans. Eventually, these other hominids would go extinct, with the last Neanderthals dying out around 30,000 years ago. And this is another big mystery as to why these archaic humans all went extinct. While it appears as though some of these archaic humans simply merged with modern humans, it's believed that the majority of the Neanderthals due to, died uh, due to climate change and were unable to adapt or migrate fast enough to to, um, to the changing environment. Now, moving forward in time, there was an event that happened around 13,000 years ago known as the Younger Dryas event, and the origins of this event are still unclear, um, but There is some recent evidence to suggest it may have been caused by um, an asteroid, a meteor. Uh, And that event, uh, the Younger Dryas event, what happened is that it caused an ice age to occur in the northern hemisphere that lasted for over a thousand years. So again, this caused uh, a lot of species collapse in Europe and Asia, and the human populations really stagnated and, and were mostly pushed back down to Africa and the southern limits of Asia. But this event would later prove to be a turning point in the development of human civilization. Now, before the Younger Dryas period 13,000 years ago, all humans basically lived in tribes of 100 to 200 persons. Many anthropologists believe these tribes were egalitarian and would work on a consensus basis. Other anthropologists believe that there may have been an alpha male that would leave the tribe. And again, this is another unsettled argument. But, but what is agreed upon Uh, is that these tribes were all nomadic. So they would move into an area for a short while and basically live there for as long as it was safe and convenient to do so. And since there were no possessions to speak of, except perhaps dogs, which were first domesticated around 18,000 years ago, it was relatively easy to keep moving. But after the Younger Dryas period started to wind down around 12,500 years ago, we see the 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 first human beings began to settle down into sedentary societies and started to plant the seeds of civilization. And the humans that would first would form the first sedentary civilization lived in the Levant region, which spans modern day Israel and Jordan. And this early sedentary civilization is known as the Natufian civilization. In fact, if you go to Israel, you can find a site known as Jericho, which is one of the last Natufian settlements that you can actually go and see. And the reason the Natufians were able to settle down was that they discovered that they could harvest the natural cereals that were growing in the region, cereals like rye, barley, and emmer wheat. And we've actually recently discovered evidence that these Natufians were baking bread as far back as 12,000 years ago. And as a result, some anthropologists believe that this bread, which would have been one of the most delicious foods anyone had ever tasted at that time, may have been a catalyst that spurred the development of crop planting and hence farming and agriculture. But the reason why the Natufians fizzled out was that they that neither they, they nor anybody else knew how to make farmland uh sustainable, so they couldn't make agriculture sustainable. And as any farmer knows, you need to maintain a discipline around crop rotation and fertilization or else the land eventually becomes barren and will not produce crops. And this is exactly what would happen to the Natufians. But before this failure, the Natufians had come up with the seeds for what we now refer to as the Neolithic package. And what this Neolithic package entailed were the following four skills or technologies, if you will. And they are... Uh, number one the ability to build a simple four post home number two the ability to make simple ceramics and earthenware number three animal husbandry which is the ability to raise livestock and other animals and finally number four basic planting and farming so the habit of trade was also uh, formed during this time and can be said to be part of the neolithic package with the most common item traded being salt And to a lesser extent, um, there were minerals used for making dyes and ceramics, um, used in ceramics that would also be traded. So by 9000 BCE, this Neolithic package started making the rounds in Europe and Asia. Some people would reject this package and stick to their nomadic ways, and others embraced the Neolithic package and decided to settle down. However, uh, as with the Natufians, those that had taken on sedentary life would eventually be forced to move out after they farmed, farmed the land barren. So, over-farmed land. So, same problem the Natufians had. So, almost no society would ever grow too large before it would be forced to move due to over-farming. Uh, so, this Neolithic package would just keep moving around and around. And when people were looking for new places to settle, they would actually look for um, formations known as a loess and a Lewis is basically just an accumulation of sediment from blowing dust that can form from uh, relatively large structures uh, and they tend to form around uh, rivers as well and the loess is attractive because you can easily carve a little cave for yourself to sleep in for the first d- first few days before you um, uh, go out and build your four post home and the loess is also very fertile at the same time so you can plant in and around the Loess and easily grow crops. So these Loesses were one major way in which a society could form and grow from, but even still these Loesses could only support a population for so long before you burn through all the nutrients in the soil. So this puts in a hard and narrow limits as to how long a sedentary society could stay in one place and grow itself. Now, eventually some people would eventually discover what we now refer to as river valleys. And or I should say some people some people that had the Neolithic package would discover what we now refer to as river valleys. And in every case um, that we find the, the emergence of the defining features of civilization, we can also find a corresponding river valley. And so to explain what the defining features of a civilization are, um, there's really four major features. First, there's long distance trade. Second, there's a complex writing system. Third, there are specialized industries and crafts. And fourth, there's a bureaucracy that's centralized enough to, to construct monumental settlements, uh, like temples or pyramids. And the reason why all major civilizations come from a river valley is that the river valley solves the fertilization problem and hence leads to sustainable agriculture. However, before I explain why river valleys solve the fertilization problem, I should point out that there are other pathways to civilization that actually challenge this river valley and agriculture rule. For example, and this is probably the best example, there's a site in modern-day Turkey known as Gobekli Tepe, which is nearly as old as the Natufian civilization and dates back over 12,000 years to nearly 10,000 BCE. Now, although uh, Gobekli Tepe does not leave behind any writing system, it does have some rather large complex structures that required long-distance transportation of heavy rocks, and there is evidence of a more advanced religion that you would not expect from a mostly hunter-gatherer society. And it's also believed that the site, which sits on uh, on a plateau in a mountain range, was attractive because it provided a natural form of protection from other people and from flooding mountains are great places to hide out very very um, well protected uh, so that's an example of how there can be alternative pathways to civilization but gobekli tepi is more of the exception that proves the rule um, as opposed to the typical civilization so i want to get back to, to discussing river valleys Now, to understand the benefits of a river valley, it's worth looking at the Nile River Valley in Egypt, which was easily the most naturally blessed river valley there ever was. And what made the Nile so perfect was that it would flood twice a year like clockwork, once in the spring and then again in the fall. And those floods were incredibly consistent in terms of their water volume. And what these floods would do is automatically re-fertilize the land. So this now meant that there were these large tracts of land ...that could be sustainably farmed for hundreds or even thousands of years on end. But river valleys also had a couple other properties that would spur civilization. First, because there was always a river at the core of the river valley... ...this created a natural transport network for moving produce and other goods around long distances. And you got you to understand that for most of history, travel in general was very dangerous but traveling by land was the most dangerous because you were more vulnerable to ambushes and wild animals. um, Especially if you had to go through something like a forest, whereas rivers afforded the traveler many more options for protection. Now, secondly, because the, um, the second reason that the um, uh, river valleys were, were beneficial to civilization was that because floods would often cause problems like the destruction of buildings they spurred a lot of thinking around architecture and planning in general. The third reason river valleys um, spur civilization is the river valleys were also an abundant source of clay, which could be used to make bricks or they could also be used for writing tablets. Now, Egypt was especially fortunate because the Nile River Valley floods were so consistent in terms of water volume that the early Egyptians could plan their buildings just outside the flood zone and not have to worry about them getting destroyed. And we'll come back to Egypt in a moment but first of all um, I want to go over the other four major river valleys for comparison um, and I want to talk about the civilizations they formed. So to be clear I'm just going to go over them in no particular order. First, I've already mentioned the Nile River Valley, so I won't explain that again. Secondly, you have the Yellow River Valley in China, which formed the basis of the Chinese and later Korean and Japanese civilizations. And there were also a number of smaller river valleys nearby in the same region, so it wasn't just the Yellow River. Third, you have the Indus Valley, which is in modern-day Pakistan, and that flows into the Arabian Sea, and that forms the basis of the Indian civilization. And it, too, also had smaller river valleys adjacent to it, also flowing into the Arabian Sea. Um, and fourth, we have the Coza River Valley in Mesoamerica, or modern-day Mexico, and that formed the basis of the Almec civilization, which... Um, later became the Mayan civilization, or replaced by the Mayan civilization, I should say, uh, which sadly has been completely stamped out. And fifth, and finally, this brings me to the original river valley civilization, which of course was in Mesopotamia, which covers modern-day Iraq, Kuwait, and parts of Syria. It's also known as the Fertile Crescent. And unlike the other river valley civilizations I just mentioned, Mesopotamia was uh, different in a few very significant ways. First of all, there were actually two major river valleys in the region. There was the Tigris River Valley and the Euphrates River Valley. And these rivers are uh, separated by large open like very large open plain. Uh, furthermore, Mesopotamia had access to the Persian Gulf to the south and to the Mediterranean Sea to the west. And as a result of these access points um, through the rivers and the openness of the plains between the Tigris and Euphrates, Mesopotamia had, significantly, had a very significantly heterogeneous population. Or as we would say today, it had a huge amount of diversity. Now the word diversity brings to mind a kind of harmonious multicultural society. But in fact, Mesopotamians were, were constantly at war with one another nevertheless they weren't killing each other when they weren't killing each other and they weren't always at war um they were they were often just trading with each other so but not only was mesopotamia diverse within the region itself but because it could access the mediterranean uh, that meant it could access and trade with the egyptians and others in the mediterranean like the minoan civilization that lived in crete but it could also go in the other direction to the south into the Arabian Sea and trade with the Indians in the Indus Valley. So Mesopotamia was like this river valley hub of the ancient world. Another big difference between Mesopotamia and the other river valleys was because of these huge open plains between the rivers, there was more of an opportunity and more space to raise and feed livestock. So this meant Mesopotamia had more of a livestock oriented society and economy than, say, the Egyptians, who could rely more on crop farming from the super-fertile Nile River. And I should point out that these livestock were used more as beasts of burden than they were for food. So oxen, for example, would be used um, in the effort to irrigate the land through the creation of uh, canals, for example. A third big difference uh, with Mesopotamia and the other river valleys is that its rivers didn't flood as consistently as the Nile. So it was harder to plan and build in a reliable way near the rivers because you could never be sure your structure wouldn't get destroyed by a bad flood. Now I want to pause for a moment here and address a problem um, with how we've come to um, understand our own history. And for better or for worse, most people, including myself, have a rather simplistic view of what the ancient world was like. And we get most of this from movies and television. And while historical periods are always getting mixed up, there's often some kind of, well, I'll say a kernel of truth that we can pluck out and we can say, hey, this is kind of what the Middle Ages were like in England, or this is kind of what it was like to be in Rome in 100 C.E. So we do have sort of a sense of what kind of history is like, even if it's cartoonish. But when it comes to Mesopotamia, or anything for that matter pertaining to the ancient world, what often comes to mind is the Egyptian civilization. So if someone is talking about events in Mesopotamia, we can't help but think about things like giant pyramids and golden sarcophaguses or a giant statue of a, of a goddess with a head of a cat holding um, a giant onk there's so many movies like Raiders of, the, Raiders of the Lost Ark that remind us of this history but you'll be hard-pressed to find a Hollywood movie that makes any specific references to Mesopotamia now the only exception I can find and correct I hope to hear from corrections to be honest with you is the 1984 Ghostbusters movie, which referenced the Sumerian culture, but, and they did so when they explained the origins of the, uh, the ghosts, uh, Zul and Gozer, uh, by the way, neither of which are real Sumerian gods. They just made those names up. Um, or I think they got them from somewhere else. Anyway, the only images people might actually have from Mesopotamia, um, that might pop in their mind, I think are, are really just coming from biblical references to the garden of Eden and the tower of Babel um, which are of course just fictional constructs. so the but 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 here's the thing it's worse than this. The ignorance around Mesopotamia is is um, is greatly been complicated uh by YouTube um, and um let me explain. if you go on YouTube and you search for the word Sumerian, which was the dominant culture associated with Mesopotamia, you'll find dozens of videos purporting to tell you that the government doesn't want you to know about the Sumerians. <laughs> it's, it's just nutty. Now, if you go and watch these videos, they actually do include some really fascinating facts about the Sumerians and you know, lots of good you know, pictures and whatnot, which I'll get into in a moment. But then they proceed to explain all of this, all of it, by the fact that there were alien astronauts that arrived from the planet Nibiru, who, according to them, visited the Sumerians thousands of years ago and shared um, with the Sumerians the secrets of modern technology, um, like the wheel and DNA. (laughs) I mean, it's it's just a funny mixed bag. So these ridiculous videos are part of actually a longer tradition, I hate to say it, that was popularized in the 1968 book, Chariots of the Gods, which purports to explain much of history through this absurd, and I might add, Eurocentric theory that aliens gave a helping hand to um, ancient and typically non-white cultures. So, for example, you'll routinely hear stories about how the ancient Sumerians or Babylonians or Egyptians or the natives of Easter Island got, got all this help from alien visitors. But you rarely, if ever, hear stories about Europeans like Leonardo da Vinci or Albert Einstein being visited by those same aliens. So these theories are really quite condescending in my view, and unfortunately they just continue to thrive and multiply to this day. Anyhow, as my as misguided as these YouTube videos are uh, about the Sumerians are, I think what they do touch upon is they're, they're, what what they're touching upon is when you learn about Mesopotamia, and in particular when you learn about their legal and financial systems It feels eerily modern. And so it kind of evokes this anachronistic feeling that there's something wrong with history. There's something wrong here. Um, And so on that note, if there's a Hollywood image, if there's a cartoonish image I want to plant in your minds, it is that of the Flintstones, as in Fred and Wilma Flintstone and Betty and Barney Rebel. And that show, as we all know, is predicated on anachronistic humor, where we see things uh, taken from the modern era, but reified into a Neolithic era. So, for example, parking tickets are being etched onto small stone tablets, and the daily newspaper is delivered on these big tablets. Um, For now, this analogy between Mesopotamia and the Flintstones sounds a bit ridiculous, but as I get into some details, you might come to appreciate it. Okay, getting back to the history of Mesopotamia, the first society in Mesopotamia is known as the Hasuna culture, and it would appear over 8,000 years ago around 6,500 BCE. The Hasuna culture would later be replaced by the Samara culture and the Halafian culture around 6,000 BCE. Then, and this is important, in 5,900 BCE, nearly 8,000 years ago, the Ubaidian culture would emerge. And it is the Ubaidian culture that would eventually morph into the Sumerian culture that would forge the key pillars of what we now refer to as Western culture and Western civilization. And the Sumerian culture would last until around 2,300 BCE when Sargon of Agad Consolidated power and formed the world's first empire known as the Akkadian Empire. But even with the Akkadians in charge, Mesopotamian culture was more or less preserved. Now, at this point, I want to compare Egyptian culture with Mesopotamian culture for contrast, as it helps to explain Mesopotamian culture. Because of the reliability of the Nile River Valley's floods, and because the Nile River Delta is more compact than Mesopotamia, This allowed for an easy consolidation of power. And so this is why Egypt was able to take on mega projects like the building of the pyramids of Giza. But the Obedian and later Sumerian cultures were essentially made up of independent city-states. And this is very similar to the Greek polystates I discussed earlier in the podcast. And these independent city-states were so numerous and spread out that it was difficult to consolidate power. So the moment someone attempted to do so, the other city-states would get nervous and take out any ruler who was attempting this consolidation. And while it is true there was an incredible amount of fighting that went on in Mesopotamia, there was also an incredible amount of trade that would also occur. And so while Mesopotamia doesn't really have a legacy like that of the Great Pyramids to leave behind, its legacy really comes in the form of the inventions that left behind. For example, the Obedians invented the pottery pottery wheel which the Sumerians later converted into the cartwheel and axle. The Obadians also invented the sail, which greatly accelerated uh, trade. So before that, you had to use oars to move boats around in the water. So whereas Egypt was essentially a planned economy, uh, you could say like like a Marxist, uh, Mesopotamia was very much a free market economy like Adam Smith and the most by far the most important invention that came out of mesopotamia is nothing less than the idea of interest as in charging 10% interest per annum for for borrowing money so if you borrow $1000 you need to pay back $1000 plus $100 in interest so how exactly did this idea of interest get its start in mesopotamia well here's how it worked people from time eternal Going back tens, hundreds of thousands of years ago, have cooperated by loaning things to one another. This is a very um, deep part of um, humanity and probably other species as well. So, you might loan your toolbox or your car to a friend. It's a pretty normal thing to do, pretty healthy. And so it was in Mesopotamia. But often the things that people wanted to borrow were things like oxen and sheep because you could use those animals to produce more uh, output, more wealth. For example, you could shear a sheep to extract wool for clothing and you can take an ox and use it to plow your fields. Oh, and I should point out that the Ubadians also invented the first plow nearly 7,000 years ago in 5,000 BCE. Now, I'm sure at first the person borrowing the oxen or sheep would likely pay back some kind of maybe gift for use of the animal. But this is not exactly why we have interest. What really spurred the idea of interest was that the offspring uh, was the offspring that would come from the animals themselves. So uh, by that I mean if you loan somebody let's say a flock of 30 sheep for a year, you wouldn't expect to just get back your 30 sheep, you might expect to get back your original sheep plus some baby lambs. So maybe 40 sheep might be appropriate. And the same can be said for oxen. Um, And case in point, the uh, Sumerian word for interest is mosh, which translates to calves. Okay. As in baby cows, the offspring of the offspring of oxen. And so this is how interest was birthed. And I'm not apologizing that for that pun. Now, (laughs) Once this practice of interest um, was was put in place, lending now becomes more efficient because it goes from this sort of discretionary act of charity to a profitable arrangement for, well, hopefully both parties, but at least one party. And so this kind of creates a force multiplier effect for lending. Now, suddenly everybody is lending. But of course, a solution to one problem leads to another problem that needs to be solved. And in the case of interest... In order to ensure that there's no confusion about what was loaned to whom and how much should be paid back, you need to have some kind of a contract in place so there's a record of obligations. And to that end, the Obedians came up with the idea of counting tokens, which are very tightly linked to the Obedian culture itself, and you could say in many ways defines the culture. So counting tokens are generally regarded as the oldest form of writing, And they date back to around 5,900 BCE, and thus go back 8,000 years. Now, we don't know with absolute certainty how these tokens were used. But most archaeologists agreed that they worked something like this. And I'm about to um, uh, share with you uh, an example. Uh, Now, this example is um, centered around the city of Uruk, which is actually where historians believe that interest first emerged from. Uh, so here's the example. Let's say you happen to live in the city of Kish, and which is in Mesopotamia, and you want to borrow some sheep from the town of Uruk, which also Mesopotamia. So you want to borrow them so you can make some wool fabric for your family and for your neighbors. So you travel to Yurik, which, by the way, was known at the time as the town of sheepfolds because Uruk was booming with sheep farms, and a fold is just another word for an enclosure or a pen. So you speak with this this Uruk sheep farmer, and he says to you, I'll loan you 100 sheep for 12 months, but when you return the sheep, I expect to get 120 sheep back. Agreed? So you think about it, and you... Um, you, you, you agree that you could maybe breed the additional 20 sheep while making a living from other trading or perhaps just gifting your family the wool that you pre- plan to extract from the sheep. So you say, okay, you take the deal. Then the man from Europe, Uric, opens a box and removes a bunch of his counting tokens, little pictures with little pictures on them. And they all have little, or you could say symbols on them that might look like a little sheep. And you can see that some of these tokens show an icon representing a single sheep and then others that represent 12 sheep and then maybe others that represent 60 sheep. And by the way, I should also point out that the base 60 counting system that we use to tell the time and measure degrees in a circle also come from the Sumerians in Mesopotamia. Okay, so our sheep farmer from Uruk then puts down two 60 sheep tokens and says... This is our contract. He then reminds you that all of his contracts are for one year and that if the contract is not repaid, then there would be serious consequences. And those consequences could be anything from you handing over land or other assets to uh, indentured servitude in service of that farmer. Or, you know, you might even be able to make another contract um, that pays more money at a later date. So you just go deeper into debt. And part of the reason, by the way, that this, this Uruk sheep farmer is charging you 20% interest is that 20% is a number that kind of feels fair, but more importantly, is just easy to calculate the math for because doing this kind of fractional arithmetic was, was a bit tricky back then, although in later years, other interest rates would emerge. So 20% was pretty common, but that, could be over, that 20% could be over a one-year term or it could be over a five-year term. And often contracts were around uh, two-year terms. Okay, so now our farmer in Uruk, he takes the 260 um, sheep tokens, so that's 120 sheep, and he places them in a wet clay envelope with the same shape and size as like a grapefruit or a softball. And this envelope is called a bula. And after, the pla- after placing the tokens in the bula, he then takes out a reed and asks you to etch your name on the side of the envelope. You then produce a signature that is unique to you or to you in the town of Kish. So it kind of identifies who you are. He then places that signed bula, which contains the tokens, uh, into a kiln and then proceeds to bake the bula so that it can no longer be opened without uh, cracking. He then shows you the signed bulla and says, okay, here's our contract with your signature. If you ever dispute this contract, I will crack open this bulla and prove for all to see that you agreed to owe me 120 sheep. But the good news is it's typically not necessary um, because everybody knows what's inside there already. So we now have a, a simple system, albeit a crude system for making secure contracts and the beauty of the system is that you don't actually need to be literate to use it. Everything, including the signature is pictorial. In fact, you don't even need to speak the same language as the Uruk sheep farmer, because you can simply use the tokens themselves as a way of communicating what you're trading. So the tokens also served as, as a means of communication. Now a key point I want to make here is that the combination of these Bula and counting tokens form the basis of the world's first legal contracts. And the reason why interest necessitates the invention of sovereign legal contracts is that interest creates a link between time and money and anything involving a transaction over time needs a contract to protect the integrity of that transaction. But if you pause to think about what a contract is, it's effectively a legally agreement between two parties. And with this financial contract, we now have the very first seeds of sovereign law which is to say law that is not hierarchical and that does not originate from some pharaoh or king but rather is its own sovereign entity that can be independently assessed by a judge. It is for this reason that Mesopotamian artifacts are so well preserved even though they are among the oldest archaeological finds in the world and this is because the Obadians and the Sumerians would fire kiln or bake their contracts um, that were preserved in clay. Contrast this with the um, Indians living in the Indus Valleys, who also use clay to record their writings, but they never fire kiln their tablets, and they instead just left them out to dry in the sun. And so for this reason, we have lost most of those writings from the Indus Valley, and to this day, the Indus script remains a mystery. It's never been decoded. Okay, getting back to Mesopotamia. What started as simple financial contracts with the Obadians eventually developed into more sophisticated contracts with the Sumerians. And the Sumerian word for contract was rikitsu, spelled R-I-K-I-S-T-U. And by 2300 BCE, there were rikistu or contracts for everything you can imagine. There were contracts for rentals, there were labor contracts, co partnership contracts, uh, loan and mortgage contracts, bankruptcy contracts, uh, marriage, divorce, adoption, uh, power of attorney contracts, and inheritance contracts. Now I must remind you that this is all going on over five sorry four thousand years ago, and this is in part why you why all those silly YouTube videos are getting made because Mesopotamia seems so anachronistic and runs so counter to what most of us believe about history as some kind of arrow of progress. Now these, bin, these binary financial contracts in turn form the basis of a legal code which would take on the transactional and sovereign characteristics of the contract system. The distinguishing feature of the Mesopotamian legal system was that all laws were written in the form of, if A happens, then consequence B happens. And this form of legal code has two main advantages. First, it was relatively easy to memorize the legal code. And second, it was more efficient to prosecute the legal code. Now, the oldest legal code that we know of is the Kagina code which is dated to 2400 BCE and this code deals with taxes and funeral payments and we only know the existence of this code because it is referenced in other Mesopotamian documents so we don't have the full text of the code itself. The oldest explicitly surviving code is the code of ur from 2100 BCE and it too shows a fusion between commerce law and even religion. Now, I'm going to read to you a few laws from the list to give you an idea of how the the laws were written and how modern they feel. Quote, number one, if a man commits murder, that man will be killed. Number two, if a man commits robbery, then he will be killed. End quote. Okay, (laughs) those two laws sound something you might expect from this period. Let's jump ahead to number nine now. Quote, number nine. Number nine. If a man divorces his first-time wife, he shall pay her one mina of silver. Number 10. If it is a former widow whom he divorces, he shall pay her half a mina of silver. Number 11. if If the man had slept with the widow without there having been any marriage contract, he need not pay any silver. Number 13. If a man is accused of sorcery, he must undergo ordeal by water. If he is proven innocent... His accuser must pay three shekels. I like that one, actually. Number 15. If a prospective son-in-law enters the house of his prospective father-in-law, but his father-in-law gives his daughter to another man, the father-in-law shall return to the rejected son-in-law twofold the amount of bridal presents he had brought. End quote. Um, yeah, that's interesting. So, uh, of course, many people were forced into slavery for not being able to pay their debts. There were some interesting laws regarding slavery like this one. Quote, Number seventeen: If a slave escapes from the city limits and someone returns him, the owner shall pay two shekels to the one who returned him. End quote. All right, so that that's the um, the code of urnamu Now, if we fast forward three hundred years to one thousand seven hundred and fifty-five B.C.E., where the Babylonian king Hammurabi, um, when he was reigning um, over uh, Mesopotamia. Uh, he established what is now known as the Hammurabi Code. And that served as a Pan-Mesopotamian... Yeah, you could kind of call it like a constitution, but it's just sort of a general law code. Um, And it was basically the law of the land for the entire Middle East. And it too had an if A happens, then consequence B happens uh, structure. So I'll read a few laws from this list. And this list, by the way, now these codes start to really grow in numbers. So, um, So now we're up to uh 282 codes um and to give you a taste it's even more it's much more sophisticated than the Ur-Namu law code let's jump to um number 104 so quote number 104 if a merchant gives an agent corn wool oil or any other goods to transport the agent shall give a receipt for the amount and compensate the merchant therefore then he shall obtain a receipt from the merchant for the money that he gives the merchant. Now there's number one hundred and thirty eight. If a man wishes to separate from his wife who has borne him no children, he shall give her the amount of her purchase money and the dowry which he brought from her father's house and let her go. And so we have number one hundred and fifty two If after the woman had entered the man's house both contracted a debt most both must pay the merchant end quote. And so again, we can see this relationship between commerce and law. And as I mentioned earlier, a major reason the law codes are written in this if A then B form is for efficiency. And if someone was caught breaking the law, they would be put on trial as soon as the and as soon as the trial was over, the punishment would just be meted out on the spot. And if you're lucky, the punishment's just a small fine. But if the punishment is death, then you'll just be executed on the spot and there there weren't really any and there was a good reason for doing this because there weren't really any prisons to speak of the closest thing to imprisonment was really just enslavement but enslavement typically happened after someone could not repay their debts so if there was a moral failing it's more likely you would just pay a fine or be executed or maybe have your eye or tooth cut out again this was all done on the spot now at this juncture It's worth comparing um, this approach to law and order to the Egyptian, Chinese, and Indian approaches to law and order. Now, Egypt's legal system was relayed through the goddess uh, Ma'at, who was the embodiment of truth and justice. And that actually goes back nearly as far as the Mesopotamian law to 2300 BCE. And in in Ma'at, Egyptian Ma'at law, There was no if-A-then-B formulation there. Rather, Maat promoted a set of customs and traditions and philosophies. Now, Maat was actually surprisingly egalitarian in that all people, except pharaohs, who were basically considered demigods, uh, were equal under the eyes of the law. So that's the good news. The bad news is that Maat believed in collective punishment. So if someone in your family did something bad, you might get punished too. And this is very similar to how early Chinese legalism also worked, although legalism came much later. Now, in general, similar to the Egyptian law, uh, there's Chinese law and that they were both based on understandings, duties, and rituals. And India law was similar too in that it was based on customs, duties, and rituals. And so it was really Mesopotamian law that is the exception to the rule here. And I'm sorry for that pun. Now, given the contrast between mesopotamian law and chinese law i want to take a moment to explain a bit more about how chinese law worked and to some extent still does work and the best way to understand chinese legal thinking is that it mainly worked through analogy so if you were put on trial litigators would argue by way of analogy that you were guilty or innocent um, as opposed to deductive interpretation of the letter of, the letter of the law Although to be honest with you, analogy was not so much used for judgment of of guilt or innocence. It was more for meeting um, uh, out punishment. So th- this this concept of analog- analogical thinking was first put down in the Penal Code of Li Jing. Now, before there was legalism, which I discussed earlier in this podcast uh, when we di- when we were discussing Chinese logic and Mohism. There was a book titled Shang Shu, or the Book of Historical Document, which is one of the most important texts in Chinese history, as the book was developed over a long period of time and there were many authors involved, beginning as far back as um, 1100 BCE. So you can think of it as effectively as a compendium of Chinese wisdom and knowledge that was mostly written during the Warring States period. Now, both Confucian thinkers and Mohists actually drew from the wisdom contained in this book. And the Book of Historical Documents also formed the basis of Chinese legal thought. And the core principle described in this book comes down to reasoning through analogy as opposed to deduction. So, for example, there's a section within shang Shu called li Jing. I already mentioned that, which translates to the Penal Code of li and was known as um, Making Convictions by Analogy. And its main principle was as follows quote, If there are provisions which are much severer on similar conducts, then lighter punishments shall be implemented. And if there are provisions which are much lenient on similar conducts, then severe punishments shall be implemented. End quote. Now I realize that sounds a bit obtuse, but what this principle is all about is creating a kind of a thermostat or a feedback control system for crime and punishment where previous crimes and punishments are used to calibrate um, present and future crimes and punishment. And I can't say how well this principle works, but it does embrace feedback loops and hence complexity in a way that the Western legal system does not. Now, if you recall the Mohist uh, disputer Deng Ji from earlier in this podcast, you can see how this verbalistic style of debate, uh, or his verbalistic style of debate rather, which very much resembles Western-style debating, would have frustrated and flummoxed his opponents who would be relying on analogy-based argument, which tends to be more substantive in nature, than simply arguing through words and definitions alone. Another volume contained within Cheng Shu, or the Book of Historical Document, is known as the Kang Gao, which is short for The Orders of Duke Zhao to Kang Shu. And this introduces the principle of intentionality. So here in Kangao, uh, so Kangao makes the argument that even the most serious crime should not be punished through death if they' are committed involuntarily. Kangao goes on to also say that even the most trivial crimes should be punished if they were committed with intent. So putting together Li Jing and Kangao, we can see the basis of legal thinking is based on analogical reasoning and taking intentionality into account. And this is starkly different excuse me, from the Mesopotamian concept of sovereign law put in the, the form of if A then B where there's no need for analogical reason nor any implication that intent is even relevant. Nobody cares what the intent was in Mesopotamian law. The, me- the Mesopotamian laws were effectively binary just like a contract between uh, two individuals or two entities. Another difference was that in Mesopotamia as I mentioned earlier all trials and sentencing was quick and speedy, whereas in China trials could take longer to play out and punishments uh, typically involved being sent to labor camps. And the Great Wall of China was in large part built by these very labor camps. And at this point I could explain more about Chinese, Egyptian, or Indian law, but I think I've told you enough to make the point that the Mesopotamian law was really the only river valley civilization that produce this style of legal system and of legal thinking, and it can all be traced back to contracts, which can be traced back to charging interest for boring capital, which can be traced back to the livestock economy and the diverse or heterogeneous population in the region. Now today, international uh, law, how the world works, is Western law, is Western law. And so all the law in the so-called Western world Which is the whole world, basically, can be traced back to Mesopotamian law by way of Roman law, which can be traced to the Hammurabi Code, which, um, as I've already said, can be traced back to diversity and interest. Now, the Hebrew Bible is all also very much takes inspiration from the Hammurabi Code, and so in part two of this podcast, which will be released later, I'll explain how deductive analytical thinking is or was the defining feature of most Abrahamic religions. But just one more thing I wanted to mention about Chinese law, as I've already pointed out law emerged from commerce and it was only in 1979 that China decided it wanted to integrate into the international economy. So the Chinese government released what is known as the joint venture law to allow foreign companies to operate within China however the criticism of this law and chinese law in general is that is that it is too vague for westerners and this continues to be a challenge finally it is also worth noting that there are far fewer lawyers in china than in western countries like the european union and the united states take that to mean what you will now getting back to mesopotamia I want to spend some time explaining the relationship between diversity and interest because the example I gave you earlier involving a person from the town of Kish borrowing the 100 sheep from the farmer in Yurk and then being charged 20 extra sheep in interest is not exactly how things uh, played out in reality. I gave you this example more to kind of give you a sense of um, how to think about the transaction. Now to remind you, the rationale lenders used to charge interest was the idea of offspring being born to the loaned livestock. But if we look at the going rate of interest, which was typically, but not necessarily 20%, it's really quite steep and it's not hard to see how the person boring the sheep might not be able to um, birth a minimum of, or breed a minimum of 20 lambs while keeping all the other sheep alive. So 20% was a hard bargain. To remind you, the 20% interest rate was chosen because the Sumerians used a base 60 uh, counting system, and so they could easily produce calculation tables showing 20% of various amounts, since uh, 60 divided by 5 is 12, and so you could stick with whole numbers as long as you worked in units of 60 or even 30. But if you lower the interest rate beneath 20%, then the math gets more complicated. So that's how we get 20%, but it could just as easily be uh, double that at 40%. So you you would see loans easily at 40%, maybe even higher. Uh, Now, getting back to our example, if you take the person from Kish who needs the sheep to extract wool, which the family can use to make clothing and sell for a profit, you might not have a lot of options when it comes to getting those sheep. Maybe there was a, there was a time you, you had your own sheepfold, but it was hit by a plague, and, and now your sheep are all dead, and you don't know uh, how to do anything other than raise sheep and extract wool. So you're, you're, you go off looking for help, but fortunately Mesopotamia is a big place. Remember, it's a land of city-states spread across the plains between the Tigris and Euphrates. So before you know it, you're talking to strangers who speak in a funny dialect and perhaps even look a bit different from the locals you grew up with, and they might even have their own god looking out for them. At any rate, you leave Kish and eventually you find yourself in Uruk, the land of the sheepfolds, and you go to the local temple where all the market action is happening. And some people might be praying or making sacrifices to the local god or one of the other gods or goddesses like El or Inanna. But most of the people are just doing business. And eventually you meet a businessman, a farmer from York who comes into town one day a month who advertises his holdings. But this guy doesn't know who you are. And when he makes the deal and the contract for 100 sheep to be loaned with 20 additional sheep to be paid back, he's writing the contract in favor of himself. After all, he doesn't know you and you're a stranger to him. He doesn't even have to feel any empathy towards you. In the end you're stuck with a contract that will likely be very difficult to repay the lender might throw you a bone and offer to accept another form of payment like barley or silver which is more fungible and portable asset than than sheep and lambs so let's assume that the things go well and you pay back the loan in full uh you pay back the loan in full ahead of time now you now you've actually established a higher level of trust with that lender And the lender also just made a very tidy profit. So now you have a good reputation with that person, and now you're in a position to negotiate a better interest rate and and repayment terms. So this time you're charged 20%, but now you have 18 months to repay the loan, so you get a really big discount. And once the transactions make the leap from livestock loans into currency loans, more options uh, quickly open up. Now, instead of tending the sheep, I now have many different ways of paying off the loan, including finding someone else who is even more desperate than myself and who's willing to accept an even higher interest loan. And so over time, the Mesopotamian economy grew more and more financialized and the temples that served as both trading floors and central banks became more and more secularized. Even by 2900 BCE, Secular leaders known as sangu, which is the Sumerian word for accountant, would appear as senior leaders and command the same respect as senior priests. Also, during the 3rd millennium BCE, there was a huge swelling in slavery, as this was the common outcome for those who could not repay their loans. Now, I want to give you a flavor of how sophisticated uh, finance was in Mesopotamia. And this is a story taken from the book, Financing Civilization by Yale Economics Professor William Goetzman, who in turn is reporting on a 1920s excavation performed by Sir Leonard Woolley, uh, which was later analyzed by Professor Mark van de Mirup of Columbia University. And so here's what Goetzman writes in the chapter titled um, The Merchants of Ur. Um, quote Number three, Niche Lane. And by the way, the names for all the streets were borrowed by Woolley from England's town of Canterbury, so they're not, it's not the real name. Number three niche lane was the office of the businessman, Musi Gamil. Although he left no personal records, only financial ones, we know something about Musi Gamil's personality. He was educated, self-reliant, and careful with his money, keeping his own accounts in his own distinctive style rather, rather than hiring a scribe. Despite his training, however, Damuzi Gamil avoided lavish prose in favor of what Mark van de Merupe calls terse phraseology. The activities of Damuzi Gamil and other residents of the Wall Street of Ur reveal much about the role that financiers play in ancient Mesopotamia. In 1796 BCE, Damuzi Gamil and his partner Shumi Abaya borrowed 500 grams of silver from the businessman Shumi Abum. Damuzi Gamil promised to return 297.3 grams of his share of 250 grams after five years. According to the manner in which Mesopotamian calculated interest, this equaled a 3.78% annual rate. The term of the loan was a relatively long one, five years. Sumi Abum turned around and sold the loan to a couple of well-known merchants who successfully collected on the debt in 1791 BCE. Mark Van de Mirup suspects that demuzi Gamil was acting as a banker, taking in deposits at low rates of interest, and in the interim, making productive use of the money. Indeed, demuzi Gamil tried his hand with great success in a number of businesses' ventures. His principal trade was as a bread distributor. He invested in institutional bakeries that supplied the temple, In fact, he may have even supplied bread to the capital city of Larsa, which lay a day's travel to the north. He was a grain supplier to the king. One of his tablets was a receipt from the monthly issue to King Rimsin for more than 5,000 liters of grain. End of quote. That is just amazing. Now, getting back to the Flintstone Mesopotamia, Mesopotamian Wall Street, I want to share with you another slice of life from Mesopotamia. And i stumbled on this text in a quartz article earlier this year and this text is known as the complaint tablet to e nazir and it was dated around 1750 bce just about the same time that the hammurabi code was put down now interestingly the complaint is also based out of the city of ur the complaint concerned some copper that was purchased and the purchaser is not at all pleased with the poor quality of the copper. I'll just read the translated text, because it tells you everything you need to know. Quote, Now, when you had come, you spoke, saying thus, I will give good ingots to G- Gimo Sin. This you said to me when you had come, but you have not done it. You have offered bad ingots to my messenger, saying, If you will take it, take it. If you will not take it, go away who am i that you are treating me in this manner treating me with such contempt and that between gentlemen such as we i have written to you to receive my money but you have neglected to return it repeatedly you have made the messenger you have made my messengers return to me empty-handed through foreign country who is there amongst the, the dillman traders who has acted against me in this way you have treated my messenger with contempt and further with regard to the silver that you have taken with you from my house you make this discussion and on your behalf i gave you 18 talents of copper to the palace and sumi abam also gave 18 talents of copper apart from the fact that we issued the sealed document to the temple of samus with regard to that copper as you have treated me you have held back my money in a foreign territory although from from you copper that is not good and in my house i will choose and take the ingots one by one because you have treated me with contempt i shall exercise you my right of selecting the copper end quote i can feel this man's pain i really can't who hasn't you know felt buyer's remorse or been ripped off by somebody i think the only thing missing from this complaint is the hashtag first world problems now keep in mind um this complaint was written 1750 bce that's nearly 4,000 years ago. And that's, that's more than 500 years before the earliest fragments of the Hebrew Bible were put down. Now, to give you more perspective around the financial dynamics of Mesopotamia, most loans were, in fact, short-term loans and were often emergency loans. So, for example, um, a fisherman might take out an emergency, emergency loan so that they could make rent at the temple, which they would need access to in order to, to, um, to do business. However, about a quarter of the loans were longer term, and those loans would be used to finance maritime expeditions. So this is how Mesopotamian traders could spread out and go to places like Egypt, the Indus Valley, and Crete, where the Minoans lived. And it's from this trading that much cultural diffusion occurred. With all this money sloshing around in an unregulated economy, as you would expect, there were many economic crashes that occurred throughout the years. And depending on who was in charge, there were different remedies that the kings would put down. In some cases, it would be decreed not to charge more than 5 or 10% interest on any loan. But in response, the lenders just created shorter and shorter-term contracts, which were just as difficult to repay and were effectively the same as higher interest um, contracts for longer periods. So this in turn led to uh, liquidity traps. So these rules were had to be later relaxed. Another thing that happened was debt relief, and the most spectacular debt relief was put forth by King Rim Sim, who I, I mentioned already. King Rim Sim, <clears throat> excuse me, King Rim Sim thought he could curry favor with uh, his subjects by wiping out all of his subjects' debts, and he thought this would be a good idea. So he decreed that all long, lo- loan contracts are null and void. He wiped them all out. This was a very bad idea because he caused the entire economy to totally crash. And people like Demuzi Gamil, our Wall Street trader, were completely wiped out. A number of parties actually attempted to even sue the king, uh, which is another funny thought, uh, but were un- unsuccessful. And the economy, as a result, showed very little activity for the next several years. In other words, they hit a pretty bad depression. Now, if you've ever seen the show um, Mr. Robot on television, you might recognize King Rimson as the original Mr. Robot. Now, this is a spoiler alert, so fast forward uh, 30 seconds if you don't want me to ruin Mr. Robot for you. But what happened on the show, Mr. Robot, which takes place in present-day New York City in a slightly alternate universe, is the main protagonist, who you might say is of chaotic good alignment and suffers from some mental health issues, takes it upon himself to wipe out all bank accounts through computer hacking, thereby wiping out all the debts of a huge chunk of the world's bank accounts. And instead of creating some imagined utopia, the world simply becomes more craven and cruel than it ever was. And the moral of the story is that once the engine of capitalism has been turned on, you cannot easily turn it off. Okay. Even the first millennium BCE Greek rulers, they also made the same mistake. And there's a quote attributed to Socrates, who was not a fan of high interest loans. And Socrates is quoted as saying, quote, debt forgiveness is the tool of the demagogue, end quote. Now getting back to Mesopotamia, Often when economies crashed and fell into liquidity traps due to debt cancellation or for other reasons, the main city temple would act like a central bank and start offering low interest, low interest rate loans. And in fact, war itself was very much geared around this purpose. So for if one city was able to defeat another city, uh, and this didn't last very long, the defeated simply w- uh, would simply pay tribute to the victor, and those tribute payments could just be stored up in the temple for a rainy day. Now, I want to pause for a moment and explain how I've come to think of interest and usury and why it's important to distinguish between the two. Because once you understand this, it helps explain how and why the concepts of interest and usury were culturally diffused to other parts of the world in the way that they were. And it explains why in the ancient world, interest and usury didn't spread as quickly and as evenly as other inventions like the wheel and the sail. And when I use the word transmitted or diffused, what I really mean is that interest was literally conceived of in one place, in Uruk, Mesopotamia, and it was transmitted to the rest of the world from there. In fact, the idea that interest was invented once and transmitted from there, from that from a single place, as opposed to, you know, emerging naturally in multiple locations, is in fact only a fairly recent, um, it's only recently that historians have achieved consensus on that. I'd say about if you went back like 40 years, a lot of historians, you know, going back to the I'd say the, the 60s and 70s, believe that the Greeks um, and others just sort of cooked up credit-based lending on their own. But as we'll see in a moment, this concept was in fact transmitted via the Phoenicians, who in turn were the merchants operating in regions both within Mesopotamia and directly adjacent to it, like in the Canaan region. Okay, so what's the difference then? between usury and interest today interest is defined as the money paid for the use of money lent whereas usury is defined as compensation due due from a defaulting debtor but in reality these concepts exist on a spectrum with interest being on the good side of the spectrum excuse me and usury on the bad side of the spectrum So when you have a relatively low lending rates, like less than 10%, the borrower can usually pay that back. But when you have higher rates, like over 20%, in the current day and age, it can become very difficult or nearly impossible to pay back this amount. So the lender will often repossess property, uh, like a vehicle, or maybe your house. It also needs to be said here that usury is a term associated with antisemitism. And this association harkens back to restrictions in the Bible that prevent charging usury to other members in your own religion. And this was true for Christians and Jews alike. However, you could lend to someone outside your religion and charge interest. That was permitted. But given that the marketplace of Christians is much larger than the marketplace of Jews, the simple math explains why Jews did more lending than Christians. The other problem, too, was that Jews, for most of European history, couldn't own property and often lived in ghettos with curfews, so they didn't have many career options available to them. And one last point I'll make in this regard is that the Hebrews had nothing to do with the creation of interest and usury to begin with. And even though the Hebrew Bible states that Abraham came from Mesopotamia, um, as I'll explain in part two of this podcast, there's little uh, to no evidence of any Hebrews actually living in Mesopotamia before the first millennium BCE. Most of, their, most of them are living on, on an adjacent region we'll discuss in a moment known as Canaan. So you can blame, um, if you don't like usury and in interest, you can blame the Iraqis or Kuwaitis or Syrians for the invention of interest and in usury if you want. They might even take it as a compliment. But I'm sure they'll be quite perplexed if you try to insinuate that Iraqis control the world's commercial and central banks. The reason I'm pointing this out is that the word usury signals or signifies a different concept than interest. And I find this distinction to be useful. So I hope you can understand why why I will continue to use the word usury. Um, But if there's a better word with the same meaning that distinguishes itself from, from interest, I'd be happy to use it Um, in the name of uh, not invoking anti-semitism. After all, uh, words are just about defining concept and contrast to one another, uh, which is, if you remember uh, from the lesson on Indian logic, this is what Dignaga has taught us. Now, getting back to interest and usury, what history teaches us is that when interest rates are less than 10%, an economy can actually sustain itself uh, indefinitely, in theory. But when interest rates go above 20%, which is the territory of usury, then there's a problem. And that's when people start defaulting and economies become fragile. Uh, but the way I like to think of interest in usury in the ancient and to some extent modern world is this. It all comes down to trust. If there's a high degree of trust between two parties, then the interest rate is likely to be lower and those parties can borrow and loan from one another for a very long period of time. But if trust is low, then interest rates will be high, in which case all it takes is one bad month or a year, and the borrower might default on repayment. So I don't see interest as inherently a bad thing or a good thing, but I'll say this, and you'll see an example of this in a moment. Once the genie of interest is out of the bottle, you can't put it back in. And while it may seem reasonable to avoid the complications of interest altogether, like what the ancient Indians did which we'll discuss in a moment, it's only a matter of time before a nation or a state can leverage the, fr- the fruits of a, of a credit-based economy to produce technology and power that will eventually annihilate all other nations not possessing the same technologies and power. So as long as the, the idea of interest is out there, there's no way to completely hide from it. But as you'll see, not everyone was on board with this idea of interest. Returning to Mesopotamia, the free market credit economy would enter a period of ups and downs by 1700 BCE and eventually it would go into a full-blown collapse by 1200 BCE. There were ups in far that Mesopotamian culture spread to Egypt by way of the Hyksos people who resided in the Canaan region and the Canaan region is where we find modern-day Israel, Jordan and Lebanon. The Hyksos culture uh, was more anchored in Mesopotamian culture and, um, and so they had a lot of that technology and knowledge and they invaded and took over Egypt sometime between 1800 and 1700 BCE. Now after settling into Egypt they actually introduced a lot of these Mesopotamian technical innovations including interest and decentralized market economy. And it's also worth noting here that the Hyksos were able to defeat and take over Egypt through the use of more advanced technology that was developed out of Mesopotamia's free market economy. So this is an example of why it's really not possible to hide from a large scale free market. Eventually, it'll catch up with you through advances in technology. There were also downs when it came to the free market and interest. Slightly after, slightly later, in 1595 BCE, and going in the opposite direction, the Hittites, who arrived from Anatolia, which is in modern-day Turkey and Syria, invaded Mesopotamia and sacked Babylon, which at the time was the center of power for the Babylonian culture that, su- that succeeded the Sumerians. The, the Hittites then allowed another group of people, the Kassites, who were nomadic outsiders from the Zagros Mountains in modern day Iran to come in on the coattail of the Hittites about 25 years after the Hittites sacked Babylon, and the Kassites basically controlled most of Mesopotamia under the Hittites' protection, who were the world superpower at the time. And because the Hittites were not as comfortable with interest and usury, it was not part of their original culture, because they didn't grow up in Mesopotamia. They didn't offer the same protections for private property and effectively moved the Mesopotamia, Mesopotamian economy from a more freewheeling, laissez-faire economy to a more centralized palace economy that doesn't really need interest or credit to operate. However, the Hittites did like the Mesopotamian style of law and order, so they adopted the same style of legal codes. Now, by 1200 BCE, the, the, the Hittites had been all but vanquished from Mesopotamia. Initially, it was the... Uh, or they would be uh, vanquished by Mesopotamia by 1200 BCE. Initially, it was the Egyptians who neutralized the Hittites after the Hittites attempted to invade Egypt. And in this weakened state, another emerging force, the Assyrians, who had maintained a presence in Mesopotamia before the Hittites and who were laying low eventually completely vanquished the Hittites and the Kassites from Mesopotamia, sending the Hittites back to Anatolia. What's also interesting to note here is that a key battle, the Battle of Kadesh in 1274 BCE, that neutralized the Hittites and prevented them from expanding into Egypt, was fought using modern technology, uh, namely a more nimble two-person chariot that the Egyptians had developed after the Hyksos people injected Egypt with um, with new thinking With new ideas and thinking and and free markets, as I just mentioned. Now, after the Assyrians pushed the Hittites out of Mesopotamia around 1200 BCE, there was a major Bronze Age economic collapse that happened during this period that lasted from 1200 to 1150 BCE. In fact, as much as we like to think that the collapse of the Roman Empire was a big deal... The Bronze Age collapse was actually a much bigger deal as it was much wider spread and saw the collapse of both the Hittite and the, Egyptian, and the Egyptians uh, as the superpowers. So this was like a collapse of two superpowers. But even when the Hittites were in charge, you have to remember that Mesopotamia is at its core a land of diversity with many different cultures running around. So while it may have seemed at the time like the world was ending... It was just turning to a new period, often referred to as the Axial Age, which was also the beginning of the Iron Age. Now, during the Bronze Age Collapse period, a group of people whom the Greeks referred to as the Phoenicians, although we don't know how they referred to themselves because they were so secretive, emerged not so much as a military power, but as a trading and economic power. Originally from the southern part of Mesopotamia and Kuwait, by 1200 BCE, the Phoenicians had set up base in what is present-day Lebanon. The Phoenicians were incredibly resourceful, and they knew how to plan, uh, so they set up a number of bases across the Mediterranean Sea at carefully chosen locations that had natural protections. They preferred islands or outcroppings just off the mainland coast, or in some cases, natural harbors that could be easily defended. Uh, They eventually set up temple embassies at these protected locations, which later became uh, commercial cults. And like with the Sumerians in Mesopotamia, the temples acted as both religious and commercial institutions. So similar to the Sumerians in Mesopotamia, we see a kind of a fusion between commerce, religion, and technology. The first Phoenician base was in uh, Byblos, in a region known as Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon, Byblos was a major producer of papyrus, which is the paper or the writing material of its time. So this was really, you know, in high demand, and this is where we get the English word Bible from, and where the French word bibliothèque comes from. The Phoenicians also traded timber um, harvested from near their base in Sidon, which was in high demand for its uh, renowned quality, like really good timber there. And most famously, out of their base in Tyre, the Phoenicians traded a purple dye made from an extract taken from the venomous mucus of a carnivorous sea snail called the the muric snail. And this mucus was used to make both purple and blue dyes, which were so expensive that it was said any cloth dyed in this, this purple dye was worth its weight in silver. It wouldn't be until trade... In fact, it was so high demand that it wouldn't be until trade with India opened up that a cheaper replacement would be found. And this is why to this day, purple and blue remain uh, royal colors. Purple is also where the word Phoenician comes from. And it's the name given by the Greeks. And the Greek word for purple at the time was Phoenix. So the Phoenicians were basically called the purple people. Unfortunately, we don't know what the Phoenicians called themselves because they were so secretive and little of what they wrote actually has been preserved, both because they destroyed materials to hide their secrets and they mostly only wrote on papyrus, which doesn't preserve very well compared to, say, those fire-kilned clay tablets in Mesopotamia. The Phoenicians were both very religious and very scientifically minded. On the science front, they figured out how to use the North Star to navigate, and they built a superior ship hull that could cut through the water at much higher speeds than, every, than any other um, ship sailing on the Mediterranean. Uh, case in point, they were the first to circumnavigate all of Africa, and they were often regarded as pirates of the Mediterranean because of their stealthy power. Now, as incredibly resourceful and productive as the Phoenicians were, even by 1200 B.C.E., when they started operating full force in the Mediterranean, they were outnumbered by the Greeks by nearly ten to one. And by the eighth century B.C.E., they began to move their operations from the Eastern Mediterranean base, Eastern Mediterranean based out of cities like Byblos, Sidon, and Tyre, and Phoenicia, to the Western Mediterranean, with with their main base being in Carthage which is in present-day Tunisia. And this would allow them to spread out even past the Straits of Gibraltar or the Pillars of Hercules, as it was known at the time, into the Outer Atlantic by the British Isles. Carthage would be the Phoenicians' final outpost until being conquered by the Romans during the Punic Wars of the 2nd century BCE. And Punic, by the way, is just sort of a... Again, it's it's riffing off this, this word Phoenician. Um... And, and by that time it sort of formed a slightly different culture. Um, and so you may have heard the story of, uh, Hannibal who led a pack of war elephants through the Italian attempts in in an attempt to essentially defeat Rome or at least stave off Rome and, um, well, hopefully, you know, neutralize or win the, the Punic Wars at best, which actually succeeded for a while, uh, at staving off the Romans, but the Roman Republic was very stubborn and when the Roman Republic put its mind to something, it got it done. And it put its mind to destroying Carthage and it um, it annihilated uh, Carthage and the Carthaginians. Even though they had actually um, defeated them and set up a tribute payment system. So the Carthaginians were already... Um, had been sort of pacified and were paying these tributes um and that wasn't good enough for the romans and the romans just you know moved on and said you know this these people cannot stand and um just raised the entire city of carthage and even by the uh, by the by the end of the second century bc and even by the standards of the time what happened to the carthaginians was really ugly genocide Even a lot of Romans um, were disgusted by the sacking of Carthage. So by the first century BCE, all vestiges of the Phoenician culture would be gone in one sense, but I would say their legacy still lives on with us today. Now you'd think that from all of this, the Phoenicians were a major physical force in the Mediterranean, and to be sure, they commanded the sea in large part through their mastery of technology. And again, we see the relationship between the free market traders and technology. Now, since the Phoenicians were small in number and were under threat from whomever the Mesopotamian superpower happened to be, they shared the so-called Persian barbarians as a common enemy with the Greeks. And this meant that they competed with the Greeks economically to some degree, but had no reason to go to war with the Greeks for the same reason that the Greek polystates banded together in alliances like the Delian League, for example. And it wasn't just the Greek, It wasn't just the Greeks that the Phoenicians had uh, cordial relations with. They had very good relations with the Hebrews, probably the best, who were based just south of Phoenicia in the Kingdom of Israel. And they also traded with the Etruscans, who resided in what is now Italy, or more precisely, Tuscany. At this point, we still do not have concrete evidence that the Phoenicians taught the Greeks how to make interest-based loans. But we do have evidence that the Phoenicians and Greeks traded with one another and also shared knowledge as far back as 900 BCE when the Phoenicians first taught the Greeks the alphabet. In actual fact, the Phoenicians invented what we now call, um, what, what is now known as an abjad. And an abjad is just an alphabet with only consonants and no vowels. So, you know, it has letters like C and D, but no letters like A and E. In actual fact, the Phoenicians invented, um, so sorry, um, so the Abjad was um, 22 letters. And after being um, taught, the, after the Greeks were taught the Abjad by the Phoenicians, the Greeks simply just added the vowels into the Abjad, like A-E-I-O-U, although of course it was the Greek version of those vowels. And they then said, well, this is no longer an Abjad, this is the alphabet, so yeah, there, that's why some people will say the Greeks invented the alphabet, but um, I think the Phoenicians were really, really the ones that, that invented it or deserve the credit. But to this day, the word um, and, and to this day, the word phonetic uh, speaks to how something sounds comes from you know the word Phoenician, uh, since the Phoenicians had found the simplest system for encoding any natural spoken language into a small set of symbols that can be easily learned. And this is how the Phoenicians left their biggest impact in the world, since all subsequent alphabets can be traced back to the original Phoenician Abjad, which was first put down around 1300 BCE. The Phoenicians would continue to meet with uh, with Greeks on Cyprus, which was its own kingdom, and the Phoenicians would later teach the Greeks their system of weights and measures, which we actually have evidence of. By 700 BCE, we can see that the Greeks started making interest-based loans, and it was at this period that the Greek economy goes from a plunder-based economy that earns its fortunes from conquest to a credit-based economy that earns its fortunes from mutually beneficial trade. And to remind you, it is also from this same period that we see the rise of what we now refer to as classical Greek culture. Once Greece started heating up, this activated both mathematical thinking and legal thinking, both necessary skills. And as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, the Greeks embraced the liberal arts above all else because they felt that this gave them a sense of moral righteousness and superiority in contrast to the Phoenicians and Egyptians, not to mention the Persians, whom they felt were all in it for the money, um, as opposed to the Greeks, who felt that they had this self-professed love of wisdom and I, you know, they did, (laughs) they loved wisdom. So this led to the rise of the sophists, the Greek sophists who were the original lawyers, uh, which we discussed much earlier in this podcast. And in turn, the sophists uh, and by the way, if you haven't heard it already, you might want to go back and listen to that earlier part of that, the podcast, so you understand who the sophists were in their relationship with Aristotle. Um, So the, um, the sophists of course being the earliest lawyers and lawyers being lawyers, I mean, not much has changed, uh, created a sort of a reaction among philosophers led by Socrates, Plato, and ultimately Aristotle who felt the sophists were just sort of like playing games with words. And so Aristotle laid down the rules of debate and inquiry through his um, series of books, his Organon, um, known as the Tool, which of course contains the six volumes of books on on um, uh, logic and analytics, and including the third book, Prior Analytics, which introduces the concept of the syllogism and its so-called uh, middle term that links together or glues together concepts to derive conclusions. And hence, this sets in a formalized and deliberate pattern of deductive top-down thinking. Now, this is not the only way that analytical thinking was ingrained into Western culture. And in part two, we'll discuss the Abrahamic religions, beginning with the Hebrews, uh, Hebrew Bible, and we'll talk about the Hebrews, also the Hebrews' relationship with the Phoenicians. And for this reason, I would actually argue that the Phoenicians are very much a pivotal waypoint On the pathway to Western civilization. Now, getting back to these meanings between the Phoenicians and the Greeks and the transmission of interest. As I mentioned earlier, the Sumerian word for interest was mosh, which means calves. And in Greek, the word tokos also means interest, but it also refers to the offspring of cattle. Even in English, the word pecuniary, which means relating to or consisting of money, as in I'm out of a job and I have some serious pecuniary problems. That word is rooted in the Latin word picas, which means flock as in a flock of sheep. The point I want to make here is that this idea that interest is based on the offspring of cattle or sheep or whatever is just that it's an idea, it's inspiration and it's a sales pitch. It's hard to say Um, and it's even doubtful that anyone was tracking interest rates to actual offspring growth. The underlying concept was, but the underlying concept was just, um, it it had this sort of intuitive resonance to it. So it's not hard to see how someone could use the concept of offspring to rationalize charging a fee for money on goods lent for extended periods of time. It's a great sales pitch, but this concept or sales pitch only works well when you have a diverse or heterogeneous cultures that are trading with each other and there's a reason why all the abrahamic religions prohibit usury within religion but allow to a greater extent to occur across religions and this is because religion and culture is a form of group cohesion and group protection so this concept of interest requires a fine balance between trust and mistrust to work it's not unlike Bernard Mandeville's insight in his poem The Grumbling Hive that a certain amount of vice must exist for an economy to flourish, otherwise there'd be no way to there'd be no need to buy locks for your front door. Putting this another way, there's an old saying that you shouldn't hire a friend to work for you unless you can also fire them. And if you've ever been in that situation, you'll realize that sometimes you're better better able to make sober business decisions when the people involved are at arm's length than when you care too much about these people. Again, this is a paradox like the paradox of thrift. But I think it's good to contemplate and understand this paradox as I think that this leads uh, to a useful form of mindfulness and ultimately puts us in a more, in more control as, as individuals and as a society. So this perhaps explains why India never embraced interest and usury and are, in fact, the oldest recorded critics of usury. Case in point, there is documented criticism from Vedic sages, which was put down in the first millennium BCE and actually may have been trans- orally transmitted through Vedic Sanskrit from a time prior to that. The Indian Buddhists even re up this opinion, and so India never Um, really had a credit-based economy in the same way that Mesopotamia and later the Mediterranean enjoyed. And because until the first century CE, there was no contact between China and the rest of Asia, except through India, there would be no way for China to have received the concept of interest because India was, um, you might say, shielding or censoring or just not discussing or participating in this idea in any way, shape or form with the Chinese. I mean, not even with themselves. Um, But even if even if something like that happened, uh, reason would stand that, um, you know, even if Chinese did kind of somehow like somehow somebody short circuited the whole India thing and went right to China with interest, I suspect it would have been rejected in China, too, because China's even um, even more than India sees itself as an homogenous population that, you know, they they don't want to be kind of like strangers. So I don't think it ever would have taken off in China at that time, at least. So, by the time the links opened up between China and the rest of Asia, uh, legalism was fully formed, and there wasn't really the opportunity for a free market to open up that would allow this type of lending. In fact, it's only been over the past few decades that China has opened up in this regard. Neither China nor India developed legal systems similar to the West, which is to say, neither India nor China had legal systems based on the notion of a verbalist and invariantist laws that follow the form of if A, then B, that we might call sovereign law. And this might be explained by the fact that they didn't have a base of financial contracts to worry about. Commerce did not reign supreme in these societies. And because the legal system is highly interpretive and not written like um, computer code, there is less incentive to become adept at the game of law itself since the legal system was not set up to be like a game with well-defined rules. The human intention is not inherently disentangled um, from these systems. And for this reason, there is less appetite both on a commerce and on a legal front, which are both highly intertwined in Western culture. Um, for deductive centric reasoning, because deductive centric reasoning depends on defining concrete axioms that are outside of human influence, but in all societies except those that are in western that are western in nature, human power um, reigns supreme, and so it's better to work the human angle than it is to work the legal commercial angle. Now, before I start summing up, there is one last point i want to make regarding mesopotamia and western civilization many historians and anthropologists point to writing as the most important and defining innovation to come out of mesopotamia as it appears to be the first place that writing emerged from and while doing my own research i greatly entertain this hypothesis and spent many an hour researching the history and evolution of writing to understand its impact on analytics and human thought in general Um, i'm not so sure it does have that impact on western civilization for example we know for certain that a fully abstracted writing system was also developed by the mayan civilization in mesoamerica which is present-day mexico completely independent of the mesopotamians and it's also possible other writing systems also emerged independently there's there's a lot of debate as to whether um Writing systems in Asia emerged independently, or if they were all inspired by the Mesopotamian cuneiform writing system. So, for example, uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics, uh, Indus Valley script, um, Minoan script, uh, the um, Chinese oracle bone script, they may have uh, been inspired by Mesopotamian writings, or they may have emerged on their own. We can't say for sure. But what's most interesting to note here is that if you follow the natural evolution of how writing appears to emerge it tends to follow a religious path as opposed to a commercial path. Namely in every culture that has ever devised a writing system with the exception of the Mesopotamians the earliest writings have always been of a a religious nature. So take for example the Chinese Oracle Bone Scripts found engraved on the plastron or that's the flat side of a tortoise shell um, and those oracle bone scripts they were used in divination rituals to convene with the heavens. Um, so for example they would just engrave a question on the oracle bone scripts they'd throw it in the fire and then there would be some cracks uh, on, that, on that shell and the cracks would actually kind of create words and they'd read those words back and that would give an answer to the question from the heavens. It's a little bit like how the I Ching works. Um, So, you know, this is, this is kind of interesting how um, it's just Mesopotamia that does not have the religion. It's like the religion is the rule. This financial writing is, is, is very much an outlier. Um, So it's not the writing of Mesopotamia that changed the world Uh, that could have come from anywhere. It's the commercial interest-based contracts, which needs the diverse population with the livestock economy to spring out of. And if we look at the other other river valley civilizations around the world, they lack those characteristics. Okay, I'm going to begin to wrap up this final installment of part one of this podcast by summarizing uh, what we have learned, as well as give you a preview of what we'll get into in part two, which will come out later in 2019. To summarize my main points, analytical thinking requires three preconditions to come about. First, conscious reflection, which at a minimum generally means the ability to write stuff stuff down and read it back. Second, democratic debate with an environment that supports freedom of thought. Third, we need to have some baseline of shared values or axioms if you prefer so that there can be a toll hold or some purchase while debating. And at a bare minimum, this just means that people are speaking the same language. And I haven't said that much about these shared values in this part of the episode. So in part two, this is very much, part two is very much going to be about how we obtain our values and how those shared values or lack of shared values have guided history. However, even if those three pillars that I just described, those three conditions of analytics are present, there will not be much of an appetite for deductive analytical thinking without what I call the three analytical appetite conditions that must first be met. And first, there must be diversity or a heterogeneous population living in close proximity. Second, there should be interest or credit-based commerce in place. Uh, The second condition is both the catalyzing enzyme for the third condition as well as an accelerant for analytics in general to this day. And the third condition is contractual, verbalist, invariantist sovereign law that can be gained through deductive analytical reasoning. Now, the second pillar, being credit-based commerce, is what brings about the third pillar, being the sovereign law. But once the third pillar has been erected, it's possible to take away the first two pillars and analytical deductive thinking will continue to plod along in a more simple way. However, if you inject credit-based commerce, which is to say you are re- you are rebinding leveraged commerce with the law, this will greatly accelerate the appetite for deductive analytical thinking. And it's for this simple reason that potentially anyone can now profit from analytical deductive uh, reasoning because interest is everywhere now so to sum up this part of the podcast i believe that there's nothing inherently bad about in deductive analytical thinking and it has actually brought about a great number of positive outcomes through math science and technology however since western thinking has taken over the entire planet we have a natural habit of looking at logic and analytics as the tool for inference of knowledge whereas in the Indian Buddhist tradition, logic was merely seen as a tool for the inference of knowledge. And while it is true that in a Western world, a Western tool is going to be use, more useful than not, it's entirely understandable that we gravitate to, um, to towards top-down logical thinking when we uh, go about problem solving. However, What's become apparent to me after studying this history is that our tradition of logic and deductive analytical thinking is being done in the name of efficiency. And we're subconsciously biased towards simple logical thinking because it is often the fastest route to a solution. And it is for the same reason that our systems of commerce and law are also designed around efficiency. Logical efficiency is great most of the time, but when it comes to complex problems like the macroeconomy, climate change, uh, mental health disorders, um, and, and concerns that involve chaotic feedback loops, the use of top-down logic can often be counterproductive and can even take on the form of sabotage. And so my hope with this podcast is to bring a mindfulness to our thinking so that we do not fall into the trap of this top-down hedgehog thinking but that we use the tool of logic and analytics purposefully and mindfully. And the hardest part of doing this will come down to defending arguments that are based on observed patterns and analogies against arguments based on axioms that you may partly agree with. And if you can do that, if you can hold your values and your ideas lightly enough that you can embrace paradoxes or contradictions that may appear to arise out of them, then you can achieve a level of autonomy and of free thought that will put yourself in more control than ever. So that's the end of part one. In part two, I'm going to more deeply explore, as I mentioned earlier, where we get our values from and what shapes those values. Remember truth is always relative to values. Also in part two, I'm going to fill in the the period between the classical Greeks of the fourth century BCE up to the copernican revolution of the early 16th century and um, i'm going to explain how analytical thinking was preserved during this time and a big part of this section will be discussed will be spent discussing the abrahamic religions and contrasting against the eastern religions and finally i'm going to explore a concept i refer to as the aesthetic truth which you can think of as a kind of a fantasy that propels us all to accomplish Um, incredible acts of courage of generosity as well as horrific acts of depravity because at the end of the day we're all romantics thanks for listening and until next time have yourself a meaningful thoughtful and serene day goodbye